You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Father, as we spend the last couple hours together, again, I've heard Anthony put this phrase so many times, but we ask that your spirit have his own way. And each of us, as we think about these things that are so important to you and have the possibility of advancing your kingdom in our communities, we commit ourselves to you for the next few hours in Christ's name. Amen. Be seated. Well, again, I want to take just a a little bit of time. And of course, when I say a little bit of time, I have no idea what that means. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years, so we're on a biblical timetable here. (laughs) But I would like just to react to... um, Anthony's talking about the battle, the last talk that he was sharing and what was going on inside of me. And I, a couple of things I jotted down as I was sitting in the back. And one of the things, the reason I pulled this up here, I, Anthony told me to be here in case I needed it. And a, a sketch that um, I came up with about two years ago when I was leading a school of spiritual direction came back to me in a fresh way that I want to share with you in just a little bit. Um, But the verse that popped into my mind most clearly as Anthony was talking about these difficult things is, this is not a marketable message. The Lord said, I'd like you to enter by the narrow gate and walk the narrow road. And the word narrow is thalipsis in the Greek, and it literally means crushing. So what he's asking, what he's saying to us is, he wants to kill what we think we need for life, but don't. He wants to kill all of the idolatry in our hearts that we think we need this and need this and think God owes us this. And uh, we think if we live in a certain way, we'll get it and God somehow is going to be cooperative with our demanding spirit. Um, And that isn't really how it works. So it's it's a bit of an unmarketable message. And the, the, the verse that came to my mind most clearly was from Isaiah 30, a very familiar passage that I've looked at many times. God through Isaiah is warning rebellious Judah And he says, they tell their pastors, they tell the seers, stop seeing visions. Stop hearing from God, in other words. We don't like what you're hearing. Stop seeing visions. They tell the prophets. I think Andy has a prophetic role in a Christian community. They tell the prophets, don't tell us what is right. Tell us nice things. Tell us lies. Verse 11, Isaiah 30, verse 11. Forget all this gloom. Get off your narrow path. Stop telling us about your Holy One of Israel. The the real burden that's behind this whole day has to do with how, how do we engage each other in ways that produces spiritual formation, that makes us more like the Lord. And being more like the Lord doesn't just mean external morality. Because a lot of Christians, I think these days, and I fall into this sometimes myself, that, you know, I've often said this, I've never committed adultery. I've never been drunk, except for that one time at a San Francisco winery <laughs> where I didn't know etiquette as I walked down the line of little bottles there, and I just did this all the way down, and I walked out, and I said to Rachel, I don't feel very good. She said, you're drunk. <laughs> and I remember saying, what's the appeal? <laughs> I don't understand it. But it's really so easy for me to, to look at my life and figure I haven't done all these big bad things, so 
I guess I'm like Jesus. Um, as opposed to saying, no, wait a minute, what Jesus did was sacrifice himself completely for the glory of the Father. And it showed up in the way he related to people. So spiritual formation is how you relate to people. It isn't the sins you don't do. Now, I'm certainly not arguing against the legitimacy of not doing these big bad sins. Of course that shouldn't be part of our lives, but, but a lot of us get pharisaical about it. And we're doing quite well because we haven't done these bad things. But what does it mean to become like Jesus? I want to say just a couple of things. There's Something I read a couple of years ago, and those of you who've been to some of my classes before have heard this, but it occurred to me this morning again. There's an old um, Catholic theologian named Bernard of Clairvaux back in the 12th century, and he came up with a little model, if you will, a way of framework, not, not a system or a formula, but a way of thinking about, about the Christian life. And when I first read it about seven, eight years ago, I, I wasn't drawn to it, but the more I think about it, the more it makes sense to me. He suggests that there's kind of, kind of four stages. I don't want to put that in steps kind of a thing, but four kind of a flowing motion uh, from immaturity to maturity, from spiritual deformation to spiritual formation. And he put it this way. He said, the first stage is how all of us enter life. We all enter life basically with this attitude, I love myself for my sake. No child ever refrains from crying because mother's tired. And although we see that in children and legitimately understand and excuse it, obviously to some degree when they're babies, but as we grow up, if do I love myself for my sake? As I stand up here now with a microphone in front of me, am I loving myself for my sake? Am I trying to think of something funny to say that you like me? Am I loving myself for my sake? That's the first stage, and we're all guilty of it. That's what it means to be born in sin. And when God saw that back in Genesis, twice it said that from their early, from the earliest days, um, they were evil. There was evil in their hearts. Nothing came out of their souls but evil, and God destroyed the whole uh, population with the flood because he hates sin, and he hates the fact that I am so radically self-centered by nature. That's called the fall. Bernardo Clairvaux says we all begin that way. And then he said, we come to a point in our lives where we realize that God sees us as we are and actually loves us, wants to forgive us, and wants to give us life. And so we become Christians, we become followers of Jesus, and then we go to the second stage where I love God for my sake. And now God becomes useful, and we're glad for him, and we think he ought to keep up the good work. We call him sovereign, we really mean stubborn. But then after a while, we realize, as our maturity continues, or our growth toward maturity continues, we realize that, that we're really very self-centered. And yet he still loves us. And then we start getting a hold of what the word glory means. We fall short of the glory of God, that he can look at people who reject him and die for them. He's an incredible God. And then Bernard says the third phase begins to be entered into, where we love God for God's sake. And we have plenty of verses like that all through the Scripture. I did a seminar recently on 66 love letters, and I came up with about 20 or 30 verses that I put on PowerPoints for the, for the group in which God makes it very clear that everything I do, I do for the sake of my glory. And it's Ezekiel, 20, Ezekiel 36, 22 is my favorite passage about that, where he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a new heart, but when I give you a new heart, that's going to be inclined to follow me. I want you to understand, I'm not doing it for your sake, I'm doing it for my sake. I want to reveal myself, because revealing myself is the best thing I can do for you, because I'm that good. So stage three, if you will, is I love God for God's sake. And when I first read Bernard, I thought, that's it. And he said, no, there's a fourth stage. And it was a fourth stage that kind of confused me. 
See if it confuses you. I think I'm getting it now a little bit. But the first stage is this. The first stage, recall, I love me for my sake, radical self-centeredness. Second stage, I love God for my sake. He's forgiven me. Keep up the good work. Bless me a lot. Third stage, I love God for God's sake. Fourth stage, I love myself for God's sake. Now think about that. Can I love whatever God allows to be true about me, my internal struggles, my disappointments in life, illness, other kind of struggles? Can I love the fact that I'm alive in whatever circumstances I find myself, whether a good marriage or a bad marriage, whether divorced, whether employed, whether poor, whether whatever, can I say that in any situation of my life, I cherish, I seize the opportunity to reveal something about God in the middle of where I am. That's I love me for God's sake. Now, I think that's rather a high calling. And I'm not sure if I live it particularly well. I can teach it a little bit, but living it's a bit of a different challenge. And so about two years ago, I came up with a little sketch that came back to me with a fresh bit of life as I was sitting back there in Anthony's presentation. And I began thinking about that passage where Isaiah 30, where the, the Israelites were saying, we don't want to hear the tough stuff. We, we, we want to hear pleasant things. We want to hear things that are going well, and we want to hear promises from God and how God's going to bless us in this way because I love God for my sake. We kind of get stuck at stage two. And so I started thinking, well, how can, how, how can we move into a, into a, a kind of um, way of thinking that could result in the kind of conversations that Anthony's talking about that maybe could actually lead us to become a little more like Jesus. And so this is a sketch that some of you have seen, but it's a little bit fresh for me at the moment, and I wanted to share it with you. Just to, Let me just draw an iceberg. My artistic ability is legendary. Oh, did you want to see it, Bob? Oh. Okay. And what occurs to me is the way a whole lot of us live, and we all live this way naturally, even as believers, even as followers of Jesus. The most natural way to live, even as Christians, is to live what I simply call the managed life. Now think about that. The managed life. If you've read the pressures off, you'll be familiar with what I'm going to mention now very briefly. I just jotted this out this morning during Anthony's last chat, and I thought about the verse in Deuteronomy 29.9 where, where, where God says through Moses that if you carefully follow the terms of this covenant, everything you do will prosper. And I believe we badly misinterpret that verse to lead us into the managed life. I believe we interpret that verse to mean if we get it right, life will work as we want it to. How many of you have been raised in a Christian home and were saved in the early days? Fair number of you? Well, I was too. And do you remember, I was raised in a Christian home, were you like me, that even in grade school, when I had a big spelling test or something, and then I went to high school, a test in chemistry or whatever, where I wasn't very good at all, the morning of a big test, I would have my morning devotions. <laughs> Why? Because without knowing it, I was buying into what I've come to call the law of linearity. If I do A, B will follow. It's a straight line from A to B. If I'm obedient, God will bless. That's how it works. An entitlement spirit develops out of our attempts to be obedient. And now we're obedient for all the wrong reasons. And I believe what happens when we live the managed life, we see the Bible not as a bunch of love letters, 
We see the Bible as a bunch of principles to follow. And so what happens then, if the Bible of Christianity becomes nothing more than principles, then under the managed life, we live with principles that leads to pressure. And now we lead the pressured life, which when it works, we become proud. When it doesn't work, we become angry. So nothing good comes out of the managed life. Our commitment to the managed life is, I will make my life work. I will do good for my sake. Bernard of Clairvaux. But as we seek to lead the managed life and try to get it right and do our best, we've all experienced this. It doesn't always go according to schedule. Some things go wrong. So I wrote a book called Shattered Dreams. I had a contract with a publisher to write that book, and when I wrote it and entitled it, uh, I sent it in, and they called a meeting, and they flew up to meet me, the heads of the publishing company, and they sat down and they said, we're reneging on our contract to publish your book. And I said, uh, why? And they said, um, nobody's interested in hearing about Shattered Dreams. It won't sell. It won't market. Now, it hasn't been a runaway bestseller, but it has sold reasonably well, and I've had a lot of people. I got a letter yesterday from a prisoner I've been corresponding with for a couple of years. He just got a real bum deal on a, on a particular rap, and I think he said it meaningfully, not just the typical what you hear from prisoners, it's not my fault, I didn't do it, but I think it's more legitimate he got a bum rap. And he said to me, if it weren't for shattered dreams, I think I'd have killed myself by now. Because I've come to realize, as he wrote me in the letter, I just read it yesterday, two days ago, I've come to realize that I just can't make my life work. Things are unpredictable. And, I, and, and somehow, uh, I think I'm coming to believe that when bad things happen, God's up to something good. So all of us go through difficult times. And then the difficulty is when difficult times come, we get stuck in the level of what I call the wounded life. Anthony talked about this. The wounded life. Um... Those who've heard me teach before know that one of my favorite passages about the wounded life is Hosea 7, 13 and 14, where I won't turn to it for sake of time, but where, where the prophet is talking, where God is speaking through his prophet, and he says this, God talking, I long to redeem my people. I long to be in redemptive relationship with my people. I long to move people in the direction that I initially designed them for them to become men and women who know Jesus, who become like Jesus, who begin to relate like Jesus with sacrificial love. I, I, I long to do that deep work in people's lives, but something is getting in the way. And verse 14 says this, the reason I'm blocked from moving into people's lives with the redemptive power that I obviously have is because people are, you know the phrase? Some of you do. Wailing from their beds rather than crying from their hearts. That's how the NIV puts it. And I believe wailing from our beds basically is a matter of saying, God, I hurt, do something. What's the matter with you? Now we can dignify that in more Christian-sounding language, but that's the mood. And so now if the managed life, we follow principles and then feel the pressure, and we basically live to try hard to get it right, that becomes a Christian life. Try hard to be a good Christian. Which, by the way, you're aware that that's what made Paul call the Galatians foolish. Chapter 3 or, and verse 1, you foolish Galatians, how did you get so mixed up? You didn't get saved by trying hard. You're going to get sanctified by trying hard? You're going to get sanctified by being broken so that what is deepest within you can be released. It's a whole different mentality. But then the wounded life comes along, and we find ourselves wailing on our beds. And then one of the most popular words in the Christian culture today is the word healing. 
And when you read the word healing in the New Testament, with some exceptions, almost always it has to do with healing of sin. I will heal their waywardness, Peter says. It isn't healing their pain, it's healing their waywardness. And so the word healing has come to mean a demand of relief from pain. And trying to find some way to get us, get us, get us healed, meaning released from our pain, so we simply don't hurt that much. But as we live, for, live to be healed, then we don't notice that a certain demand starts to develop within us. I've been a Christian, I mentioned this before, been for 59 years, and, and, and there's still a lot of unhealed parts of me. But folks, I don't need to have my wounds healed to relate like Jesus. Therefore, my demand is not that my wounds be healed. My desire is that my life be released through brokenness and repentance. Now, what happens then if up here my whole goal is I want to feel good? I, want to, I will do, for, do good for myself. I'm going to try hard and make my life work. And then in the wounded life, our, our goal becomes I want to feel what I want to feel. The managed life, I want to see happen what I want to see happen. The wounded life, I want to feel what I want to feel. And then Bernard says that we come to a point where we begin to realize that I, I really love myself for God's sake, and I can really welcome tribulations that my managed life didn't eliminate, James chapter 1. I can welcome tribulations as opportunities as opposed to setbacks. And even in my pain, I can realize there's a power deeper than my pain that can be released. And when I begin to realize some of these kinds of things, then I enter into the sphere where certain kind of conversations can take place. The forming life. When I first came up with this chart, a woman that was with our little team at a school of spiritual direction, I wrote down the managed life, the wounded life, and the formed life. And she said, oh, Larry, it's not the formed life, it's the forming life. And I thought, you got a point there. So I changed it to the forming life. And when I think about the forming life, I think about, um, I guess, two things, really. This is a little bit new as of this morning, not entirely, but to some degree. Listening to Anthony, I was thinking that in the forming life, there really is a place for solitude, to be out of community. And by being out of community with each other, it's our special opportunity to be in community with the Trinity. That's the point of solitude. It's not getting out of community. It's getting into the deepest community. So there's a place for retreat, which I wish I were better at. There's a place for retreat, and retreat often results in renewal. And there's a place for that outside of community with each other. There's a place for that. You all know Brennan Manning. He just finished a book uh, called All of Grace. It's his memoirs. He's 77 years old. He needs help to get out of bed in the morning. He's very ill. Um, he's not doing well at all, but he wrote a book that was just um, a stunning book. He asked me to review and write an endorsement for it, which I was so blessed to do because he's meant a lot to me. Um, and it's a book about uh, the fact that, that he, he, he knows what it's like to go away quietly to discover more of who God is. And I was with him some years ago at a conference someplace, and, and um, Brennan, I, I said to him as we were finishing up our conference together, I said, where are you heading? What's next? And he says, I'm going on a 10-day silent retreat. I'd never done that. And so I said to him, typical American pragmatist in my managed life mentality, I said, what do you do that for? <laughs> and 
apparently was kind of puzzled by the question, and he said, what, what do I do that for? What do I get out of it? Is that what you're asking? I said, well, yeah. And he said, uh, I've, never, I've never thought of that. I thought, help me with this, Brennan. And he says, I, I just kind of figure God likes it when I show up. That was a rebuke to me. There's a place for retreat and renewal, but can I suggest something? This has taken over our understanding of spiritual formation and it's become lopsided because something else is required. There needs to be, as a result of human community, certainly with the Lord on retreats, but in human community with the kind of redemptive conversations we're thinking about today, there needs to be profound brokenness over our relational sin which provides the opportunity for the release of the Spirit of God because we too discover in our brokenness that we're more grateful for grace than we are for anything else. And the last thing I want to say, as Anthony was talking about entering the battle, entering the battle in the forming life, the battle up here is just to make life work. The battle here is to feel better. And God isn't going to help us with that battle. The battle here is to become more like the Lord. That's what the Spirit of God is committed to. And that's where we need to get away and spend time with the Lord and be renewed. That's where we need to be in human community, where we enter the battle for our souls between the flesh and the spirit. And out of that comes a release of the spirit. And I believe what comes out of that, here's my definition of spiritual formation, that renewal, con- that re- um, uh, what are they called? Redemptive conversations are all about. <laughs> hey, I'm getting old, folks. Give me a break. Um, but but here, here's, what I, here's what I would like to think is, what we're really after in our redemptive conversations. We're not really after feeling better. I mean, I'm all for feeling good. Don't misunderstand me. But it's a second thing. The first thing is relating like Jesus. And I'm all for not only feeling good, but I'm all for the blessings of life. I happen to have a good marriage. Married for 45 years, we're doing fine. I had lunch with my wife just now. She'll be here in a little bit, and we're doing fine. We still have our struggles, but she's repenting. We're doing all right. Um... But, but I would suggest to you, you didn't hear that from me, but I would suggest to you, oh, she, she come yeah, on the seal. Actually, I have her permission. Um, what, what I would suggest to you, and I want to sit down with this, let me give you my understanding of what it means to be spiritually formed. We're spiritually forming, we're never spiritually formed until glory, but we're spiritually forming to the degree that we relate in a way we're spiritually forming to the degree that we relate in a way that does two things. We're spiritually forming to the degree that we relate in a way that first reveals the glory of God's love to others. We're spiritually forming to the degree that we relate in a way that reveals the glory of God's love to others. And that goes so far beyond what a non-Christian can do. Non-Christians can be kind and generous and warm and friendly and have good marriages and be good moms and dads and be good friends. But when push comes to shove and there's something that really irritates me about you, that becomes my opportunity to reveal what God is really like. He doesn't turn his back on his children. So we're spiritually forming to the degree that we first relate in a way that reveals the glory of God's love to others. And then secondly, we're spiritually forming to the degree that we relate in a way that releases 
the power of Christ's life into others. We reveal God and we release God. Anthony spent this morning talking about Trinitarian theology. Some of you know the fancy word perichoresis that theologians back in the 3rd and 4th century came up with, perichoresis, P-E-R-I, perimeter, around. Choresis comes from choreography, dancing. The idea is to dance around. And the idea is that the Trinity, the imminent Trinity, the Trinitarian theologians talk about the way the Trinity relates, and they relate perichoretically, where everything that is in the Father is poured into the Son, and the Son receives it. Everything that is in the Son is poured into the Father, and the Father receives it. And the Spirit, St. John of the Cross says, is the kiss of the Father-Son relationship. He is the embodiment of that relationship, and that spirit is now in me, which means I'm enabled to relate perichoretically, which means that the life that is in me could actually come out of me. It's a sexual image. Could actually come out of me and stir up life in another. So spiritually forming isn't going to take place if you're leading the managed life. I'm going to try to get it right so life works. You're not in the ballgame. Spiritual formation isn't going to happen very deeply if you're living simply to find some way to get over your childhood wounds and whatever other pains you have right now. Your central purpose in life, my central purpose in life, has, if I honor God's call, is to become like the Lord and to share the happiness of Jesus, which is the happiness of sacrificing himself for somebody else. That's the happiness. So spiritual formation, we're spiritually forming to the degree that we reveal, that we relate in a way that reveals the glory of God's love to others and that releases the power of Christ's life into others. And I want to see that happen in our communities. I want to be a part of that more than I am. And that's what Anthony, I think, is going to be leading us to thinking a little bit about now for the next few minutes. Anthony, come on up. Think about that, that whole image right there and, and what Larry has just walked us through. I, what I feel, and maybe it's right to feel this way, I'm not entirely sure, but I feel like a beginner. <laughs> I feel like a beginner when you talk about this. I, um, you know, I, I have it in my head and I can think about it in my heart. But when it comes down to the times where I'm with somebody who does irritate me, then then what does it all mean? You know, how do, how does it how does it actually flesh out in me? And that's the that's where the battle lies, right? And that's that's where that's where we have to really begin to think about what gets in the way and think about it long enough that it that it disturbs us enough really so we move a different direction and i guess it's really true that the message is not really all that popular but it is a life-giving message it's and i i think i think it'll only be life-giving as we as we continue to wrestle with it over long periods of time. I was just talking to my friend, Tim, just uh, a little bit right before we started. And there's something about just being reminded of all of this. And when you're alone and you're away and, and, 
and and you don't you don't really have someone else there to wrestle with you about these things it's it's easy to to fall into that whole mindset of getting free from my wounds because it's so it so permeates our culture and it also stirs i think something very counterfeit inside of me and inside of you so it's not just our culture but it's a battle that we face on the inside so part of speaking redemptively simply is getting together with each other and reminding each other about where the battle really lies and that's the importance of of staying in it together and I have had both the privilege of being loved in that way by a few people, and it's hardly ever more than a few people, the people that I walk with. I've had the privilege of being loved in that way, and I've also had the privilege and felt the privilege of loving in that way. And if I understand the Lord right, Going back to, I think, a question that, that Peg asked, you know, how do you love somebody who's difficult? What's, what's the greater privilege? To be loved? Well, that is a privilege. But what's the greater privilege? To love. And if, if that is what's deepest inside of us, and say we're in some difficult relationship and and we seize the opportunity to love and somehow that starts to be fleshed out in us, I think that's the joy that, that Jesus is talking about. I believe it's in John 16 where he says, I'm going to give you a joy that cannot be taken away from you. So no, no one can block us from loving somebody else. And so that's the hope I think the gospel is speaking to. Not I think, I, I know. That, that's the hope that he's speaking to. That we can actually love as he loved, no matter what. And here are a couple of things I want to talk about just as we come to the end today. First, I want to show you a picture. <laughs> That's my dog. <laughs> my kids were thrilled that my dog was going to make my redemptive seminar, my redemptive conversation seminar. That's Toby. And he kind of shoved his nose up into the camera when I took that picture. But we got Toby back in October, and uh, he's been really fun to have. Uh, a lot of laughter in our house because of him. But I noticed something, this is kind of odd about me, but I noticed something about me when we first got him and we put down his bowl. And we've never had a dog as a family. Diane has had dogs in her family. I've had dogs in, in my family, but together as a family, we've never had a dog. So he's our first dog. And so when we put his bowl down and our, one of my kids wrote his name and, and stuck it up on the, the little area where he eats, 
I just watched him as he, he just naturally went to the bowl and he started eating his food. And, you know, we, we give him uh, dry dog food so you can hear him crunch it. And he's like really enjoying that food. He's just eating it. And I remember sitting down and just watching him do that. And I honestly, I still get joy watching my dog eat food. Is that not just strange? You know, to this day, I'll, when he eats his food, I'll be like, mm, wow, that's fun. And where I want to take that is, I think God really delights when we eat his food. I think he, he delights when we get nourished by the meal that he wants to provide. And that when it comes to scripture, scripture is more about the story which God continually invites us into. And I think it's an ongoing redemptive conversation with his people. He started the conversation and he continues the conversation in scripture. I remember when I picked up 66 love letters and Larry had worked on it for three years, five years altogether from beginning to end, five years. Important book. Um, I remember reading the forward, and I'm not going to remember exactly what struck me, but I just remember being struck by the fact that a lot of times in our culture today, when we feel a certain tension either in our souls or a certain tension in our relationships, it's really easy to go to some of the strategies that have been given to us over the years and try to seek to, to enter into those strategies to find some way to relieve the tension that we're going through. And how Larry one day got up in the middle of the night and one day got up in the middle of the night, <laughs> got up in the morning and um, was wrestling and with whatever he was wrestling with, something very hard, I'm sure. And, and then started to think about Scripture and then started to write out all the books of Scripture and, and what is God saying here? And actually, as he was doing that, something started to get churned up inside of him. And, and I've been a man who's actually, I, I came to Christ when I was 16, and I feel grateful for the, the foundation of the Bible that I've received over the years. I think speaking redemptively means that we, we really need a working knowledge of the Bible. That doesn't mean, don't hear me say expert there. I'm not saying expert. But we really need a working knowledge so that when we're sitting with people, we can start to think about some of the categories that, that God gives us as we're, as we're actually sitting with people that can guide our thinking. You know, and I realize there's, you know, there's a lot of talk about feeling today, and I'm, 
I think, I think there's places in my own soul that God wants me to feel more. I really do. But I, I also think there's a place to think, to really think hard about a person's life when you're sitting with them. And to think about the categories, the, the framework of the Bible and how it's set up and, and why was it given to us? So we could enter into the redemptive conversation that God's having, but also that we could enter into it with other people as well. So let me ask you just a series of questions, and I wonder how you respond to these questions. Okay. So have you ever felt surprised by joy or suffering in a way that made you ask, I thought I knew God, but really, who is God anyway? Have you ever thought that way? Some, yeah, you're all good. Second question, do you ever get confused by what God allows or doesn't allow when it comes to your life or someone else? Have you ever wondered what you might be missing when it comes to God's purposes. Okay? Have you ever wondered about why you were created as a man or a woman? Have you wondered about the reason for your existence and why that really matters? I would think we all have at some point wondered why why was I created? Who am I as a man? Who am I as a woman? Have you ever felt relational tension with someone which makes you ask, what's wrong with him? <laughs> or what's wrong with her? <laughs> or have you, ever been, have you ever been disturbed by your own relating which makes you ask, what is wrong with me? Have you ever wondered to yourself, Thank you, Jesus, for taking the punishment for my sins. But now what? Now where do we go? You've forgiven me, but is there more? I think we've probably all asked that question. Have you ever been confused or wondered about the mysterious movement of the Holy Spirit? What he might, how he might be moving in the world, in your community, or in your heart. I hope you're wondering about that today, because I sure am. What's the Spirit doing in my heart? What is he doing in your heart? What, how is he moving today? What are you going to take away from here that the Spirit has impressed upon your heart? Have you ever longed to be part, this is the last question, have you ever longed to be part of a messy honest, grace-filled, discerning community, discerning in this way, whose main focus is less about making life better and more about learning to draw near to God in the midst of whatever you're facing or might face in the future. Yeah, I think we've all longed for that. So basically, I've asked you seven questions 
And those seven questions pertain to the seven questions that God has given us to ponder in the Word of God. The first one is, who is God? That's theology proper. Who is God? Who is he? And not to assume that we already know him or we know all about him just because we're saved. But that like Ephesians 1 where Paul prays that through the work of the Spirit, we could actually come to know God better. Who is God? The second question, what is he up to? What are his purposes? What is he up to in my friend's life whose, whose house just burned down? What's, it, what's he doing in her heart? What is he up to for his purposes? That's the second question. The third is, who am I? As a man or a woman, the question was asked earlier, what does it mean to, to walk as a man in this journey? I think Diane put great words to it, the gentle strength, the gentle movement. And then the woman warmly inviting, something that stuck with me from years ago that Larry said, that there's something in, in women that needs to stop and something in men that needs to get going. <laughs> Didn't I say it all? <laughs> I mean, that is just like, hmm. But it's really true. And, and, and when we begin to, to think about that, And, and, think about, and think about our own lives in the midst of that, what that really means for us. We, be, we begin to become a community that really reveals the glory of God. And it won't be just heard in our words, but it'll be seen in the way that we move with each other. And of course, there's implications there for marriage, certainly there for marriage, but also there for community. Because some people never get to experience marriage, and we get confused by that, don't we? So the bigger question, I think, certainly there for marriage, but then there also the bigger question of community. What does that look like in community? That's the that's the third question. Who am I? And then the fourth question: all the tension. What's wrong with her? What's wrong with me? Is the question of homardiology? Um, what is wrong in the whole? the whole issue of sin, the reality, not the issue, the, the reality of relational failure and how that, that plagues us, but it, it doesn't have to plague us if we are willing to be aware of it and willing to move into it instead of wailing on our beds, learn what it means as a community to cry from our hearts together and think about our relational failure, what, what potential that could have, how that could release the life of God from inside of us. That's the fourth. The, the fifth question, what has God done? Soteriology, God, thank you for forgiveness, but what does he continue to do? Uh, and It's a phrase I love from Peterson that God has done something, but he continues to do something. And that when we come to church or when we get together as a community, are we thinking about what God continues to do for us in terms of salvation? And that it's more than just the forgiveness of sin. Certainly that's there. 
and that's huge, and that's the starting point. But then to move on from there and, and to think, I wonder, what it, I wonder what salvation means for me today. Um, and I think that's related also to just seeing our, our relational failure. That's the fifth question. The sixth is, what is he doing now? Pneumatology. Pneumatology, which is the study of the spirit. What is he doing right now in my heart? Like right now as I'm speaking. What's going on inside my soul? And what's going on in your soul right now? As you're sitting there and you're thinking and you're pondering. How is God moving in your soul in the moment? Where are you right now? That's a question that um, Larry calls red dot reflection. The whole idea is when you go into a mall and you see the big map and there's the red dot, it says you are here. Well, where are you? Where are you right now? It's a question of the Holy Spirit. How is he moving in your heart right in this moment? One of my struggles, I'll tell you, coming into the seminar was, am I going to be able to be released from my notes enough to be aware of how the Spirit is moving in the moment? That's been one of my biggest battles over the years. To be aware of how the Spirit is actually moving within me in the moment. And I think those who journey with me would say the same thing, that as I get up on Sunday, I really want to speak more to that. I I do want to speak to Scripture, of course, but I want to speak first to that, how the Spirit is moving in me in the moment, partly to, to release whatever he's doing inside of me, but also to help others get a feel for how they could do that in their own lives. And what does that look like for your life and mine? What is he doing now, pneumatology? And then the last question, how can we move together? How can we move together as a church? Ecclesiology, obviously so many different forms of churches. How do we begin to think about these kinds of things we're talking about today and bring them into the communities where God has placed us? How does that happen? And I'm going to talk about the church in a second. But I think those questions are questions that are embedded in our souls. I mean, I heard you guys, and I saw you nodding your your heads when I was asking the questions. Those are more than just external questions. I think they're questions that God has embedded in us, in the redeemed soul, that as we get in touch with who God is, they start to surface in us that hunger not to find complete answers, but to, but to understand those questions. That hunger deepens inside of us. And Scripture has been given to us to answer those questions, to address those questions on an ongoing basis, never fully in this life 
do we get an entire grasp of them. But, but Scripture has been given to us for that very reason. So to think of Scripture relationally as opposed to simply informationally. That's the difference here. Systematic theology, which is what I learned at Dallas, and again, benefits to it, of course, but the, the term now that's, that's used for more of a relational theology is spiritual theology, which is what I began to feel as I as I began to experience some of what Larry has been talking about over the years. Spiritual theology, or another way of putting it is relational theology. That, that the words of Scripture have some bearing on the way I relate as a man and the way you relate as a woman, not just information. We could talk about the Trinity very informationally, Right? And we can draw charts. You've seen some of the charts. But doesn't that fall short of what your heart really wants, which is to participate in the divine nature, which is what Peter tells us in Second Peter, that we can actually participate in the movement of the Trinity. And I think we can move in that direction and something that actually Kent gave to me and that we use in our church is something that that he had come up with and I I think it's actually available through New Way Ministries. Uh, I'm not sure what he's calling it. I think the way of life with God, something like that, where he actually takes each one of these questions and unpacks them in a relational way to get us thinking in that direction and I, I took it from Kent. I, when, I, when Kent showed it to me, I thought, wow, this would be great for my church. And so we've taken it, and I've kind of tried to make it my own in some ways in terms of what we're facing in our church. And we've talked about these questions, and we want to continue to talk about these questions. They're not something that we stop talking about. We, we talk about them together, and we talk about the implications and, and keep talking about it as a way of reorienting ourselves. That's part of why we go to church in the first place, to reorient ourselves to what we know is ultimately true, but that we can so easily get sidetracked from as we move out into the world and we get confused by different cultural messages and and we get tempted in certain ways and and then we lose sight. So part of coming together is to reorient ourselves to what is really true and what Scripture is really saying. And that, that leads me to saying something about the local church here. And I've really wrestled with this over the years because I... Um, I've been a pastor, like I said, since uh, I was 25 years old. So, and I think God has kept me in this environment. I'm glad to be in the environment of 
being a pastor, there's times I've wanted to quit because it has felt so different than what I'm attempting to describe to you now. And I'm thankful for the denomination I'm in, by the way. Someone asked me about our denomination. It's the Christian Missionary Alliance, and especially this particular branch of it. I don't know about all the different branches of it, but what I have experienced of this denomination is, is that at least the people that I, that I know, uh, none of them are here today, but they, they believe in a way of doing church that is very organic, and I remember when I first met with them and, and I said, you know, we're not about trying to make it happen. We want to be a church that's organic and we want to somehow explore together what it means to discern what God's doing among us, not throw money at this thing and, you know, put out all the posters, which is typically how church plants go, you know, mass market it and get people to come and then hopefully some stay and and the rest leave, and then you go from there, as opposed to, well, let's meet with a few people who are like-minded and who really are thinking in some of the same ways we are. Let's get together and be an organic community and move with each other. So the local church, as I understand it from Scripture, as I see the different churches that are there, especially in Revelation, the local church is the organic environment which God has provided where redemptive conversations could get fleshed out over time. Could get fleshed out over time. There's, sometimes they don't. <laughs> they really don't. And, and there's a lot that hinders the movement of the Spirit in the church. And so the question is, are we going to discern what hinders the movement of the Spirit? So it, but it really could become this place where the life of God gets released over time. And that's what we're, we're struggling with and fighting for in our church and, and hopefully walking with God. It feels more like stumbling most of the time, groping in the dark and, and just kind of moving with each other. And, and I think that's the best way to go about it. I, I, I'm not sure... I know all the ways, but that feels like the best way and the way that God has been moving with us. A phrase that has stayed with me from 66 Love Letters, I think it comes out of Titus, where God says, saunter with me. Larry, Larry mentions sauntering with God and not being in a hurry. But to saunter with him. And not being so consumed with making sure everything in our hearts are resolved immediately because it never happens that way. In reality, it never happens that way. So if you were to come to our church, you would see a, a certain ordinariness to it and a, another Peterson phrase, an earthiness to it. You know, we're just there in one sense and yet... If you had to eat, if you got to eavesdrop in on some of the conversations, it'd be what we're talking about today. That's what we're fighting for. Diane and I and David and Georgia were, were with another couple just the other day, and, and we felt like we were in a redemptive conversation with them. And uh, 
And at one point, one of the, the, this was a couple, and the, and the guy said, you know, this just feels one way. You guys are talking to us. And, and yet it felt both ways to me. There was certainly an openness for it to be both ways. And at some point I said, this is really fun. And I, I really meant that. There's something exciting about it. And, and not in an entertainment kind of way, but uh, in the way Larry put it yesterday to me, holy fun. There's a holiness to it. There's a reverence to it. But it's what we were designed for, what we were created for. And therefore, it's okay to be stirred by it and, and feel like, wow, this is, this is good. This is, this is wonderful. This is something God is doing. And here's the battle. The battle is that when you leave the conversations, you don't always necessarily see the measurable impact of that conversation. So I think that's the one thing we all struggle with. You know, when are we going to see the visual or the measurable results of what we're trying to talk about today? I'm not sure we see them all that much. We get glimpses of those we get glimpses of the life. And as we see the battle going on in our hearts, we can begin to celebrate those little glimpses of life and not expect someone to go from here to here in, in two weeks or a year or even 10 years. What if you stayed with people for 10 years, 20 years, and you celebrated just the little glimpses of life. That's how I'm kind of thinking of pastoring now. And, and um, I'm, I'm feeling some life from that. I really am. I'm feeling a sense of uh, renewal in that. And I think somebody said this before, that redemptive conversations happen best when... They're ongoing. They're open-ended. We don't have to resolve anything right away. But we can, we can speak to these things and then let the Spirit move and then, and then move along with the Spirit. And hopefully the conversations are open-ended and, and that there would be a two-way flow. That really feels important that there could be a two-way flow where as you might have developed some of these things more than some of the people you meet with, not to disregard the fact that someone could speak into your own soul, that there would be a, a, a freedom to allow the Spirit to, to do it two ways. And this is the, the last thing I'll just say about the church. Then I'll just talk about a few things that have been the gradual harvest of, of our struggling and our wrestling and our pondering together. The last thing I'll say about the church in terms of my experience is that when we speak redemptively to each other, there's not typically a wow factor like, whoa, um, like sometimes I think we, we want to feel, you know, we just want to feel alive and, 
And sometimes we use God to feel alive as opposed to, there's a subtle difference here, I think it's a really important difference, to allow the life inside us to be released. That doesn't necessarily mean that we'll feel alive. I don't think Jesus necessarily felt alive when he went to the cross. But he was alive. And what was being poured out of him was for all of us. That life flowing out of him. So there's not necessarily a wow factor, but at the same time, and I think over time, there are supernatural shifts that take place in us. I was talking to one of my friends about a shift that took place in him, and he called it a tectonic shift. I thought that was a pretty neat way to put it. Tectonic shift inside of his heart. Like what happens deep beneath the surface of the earth not really seen by the naked eye, but alters its very foundation. A tectonic shift. Some people might not see it, but it's there. And are we willing to, as a church, believe that for each other? Even when we don't see it at times, that, that God's moving somewhere deeply inside people as we begin to speak redemptively. So what could it produce in us? What could redemptive conversations over time, I really want to stress that, over time, as we walk with people, over time, what could it really produce in us? I think there's a lot of things. I came up with three. And I think I put these down because they're things that I have experienced and I believe we are experiencing as a community as we walk together, the gradual harvest of redemptive conversations, I put down three things. And the first one is solidness. That we can begin to, to feel solid with each other. What does that mean? Well, if you, have you read the book, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? If you haven't, it's very well worth reading. It's one of my favorite books by him. Um, the basic premise is that people come up from hell to meet people who are coming down from heaven, and they have conversations, actually redemptive conversations, with each other. And obviously, it's not a literal story. It's meant to be a metaphor for how we live in life, but the people coming down from heaven are solid. And the world in which they live is solid, and the people who are coming from hell are people who are shadows, and they even have a hard time walking on the grass because it's so sharp. And they can't pick anything up in this world because it's too heavy. So solidness. Something that develops inside us that allows when people sit with us, they experience a strength inside of us. And they know that there's some, something there, someone there that they could be safe with. And this is the word I, I put down here. And, and I think it's, again, it's not a technique, but it's something that I think is birthed out of us where we become people who are not pushy, 
We talked about the spirit not pushing, that we're not pushy, but we're, we're not pushovers either. That we can't easily be pushed over. That we have some weight to us and we have something to say that if, if someone allowed us to say them could be truly life-giving, solidness. And that gets produced over time. And the, the second thing is non-contrived worship. The kind of worship that I think we're beginning to experience where it's, it's not about us coming together and trying to impress God in any way. Try to bring something to him and, and try to convince him that we're actually moving in the right direction. But rather the other way where we come in wanting to receive something from God because we know we always have something to receive from God. So not impressing him, but allowing him to impress us. There's a big difference there. And as we come together as a community, thinking about what would it mean for me to receive from God today? How do I come in today? Have you ever asked yourself that question when you go to church? How do I come in today? Sometimes we get encouraged to push that stuff aside in order to worship. I think that's a big mistake. We bring what we have to God who, who, who can deal with that, who's strong enough, who's solid enough to let us be where we really are. We bring that into the church and therefore we are able to receive from God and our worship is not so much about impressing God but receiving from Him. And just like that song we sang a, a little bit ago, the words, you know, if we thought about those words and, and thought about our own lives, would we be able to receive a little bit better? And I... I I think non-contrived worship is, is where the Spirit's taking us. And then the last thing is a sense of transcendence. There, there have been a couple of times, more than a couple of times in the last several years, actually since my father died. And I'm not sure what that has to do with it so much, but I think a little bit of a catalyst to what I'm beginning to feel is that what C.S. Lewis said, that there's nothing really here that compares to what we were designed for. And as we come to church, are we aware of that? Are we aware that as we come to our communities that no one in the community is going to be able to satisfy everything in your soul? And that actually, when you stay in a community long enough, you're going to get disappointed what are you going to do with that disappointment? Are you going to take it and go, well, I got disappointed here. Let me try some other place. Or is there enough of safety going on in that community where you could actually start to embrace that disappointment together and go, you know what? We're not home yet. And for that to deepen the hunger inside of us for the world which we were created for, which is coming. The best is yet to come, as Larry has said so many times. 
are we aware of that longing and that we are headed somewhere good and it's okay to speak about that and for that not to be satisfied and in the ways that we expect it to be. And when you leave here today, you know, you might be stirred by certain things, but you're going to go home and you're going to struggle like I am. I'm going to leave and I'm, and this has been a wonderful time. I feel, I feel released. I feel like God has had his way in some really wonderful ways today. But I know when I leave, I'm going to struggle again because I'm not home yet. And I'd like to walk with people who know that. Who, who can resonate with Hebrews chapter 11, which, which talks about those who are longing for the city yet to come. And that God, God calls those people his children because they, they know that, that. They know that they're pilgrims here and the best certainly is yet to come. One of the last things Abraham said when his wife died, Sarah, is he, he said to the people around him, I think as an old, godly, wise man, he said, I'm a stranger among you. He said that near the end of his life. I'm a stranger among you. And I think that's a sense of transcendence. I'm not home. And one day I will be. And can that reality give us courage and strength to move today? I believe it does. To continue on and live redemptively and, and struggle to, and fight and fight well until we're home. So that's all I had. Yeah. Larry, you want to come up and, and share a little bit? Larry, Larry's going to come up and share some thoughts and we're going to converse together a little bit at some point. Yeah. Not so much some thoughts, but just something real quick before we take a break. Uh, some of you know the name Mike Iaconelli, you specialists who died about, what, five or six years ago in a car wreck? Well, he was known for doing past, uh, conferences with youth pastors, but he did a first conference some number of years ago with senior pastors, and I was at that conference. About 2,000 senior pastors were there leading their churches. Mike got up as the opening speaker. I introduced Mike. And Mike got up, and he began the conference, a three-day conference to senior pastors, by saying this to 2,000 of them. He said, I want you all to know that 10 years ago, I took over a church with 90 people. Today, it has 30, and I'm going to tell you how I did it. <laughs> We've laughed about the unmarketability of a difficult message, but we don't want to minimize the incredible importance of a true message, whether marketable or not. It's the Spirit of God's job to bring people to Himself. It's our job to stay faithful to His Word. And we can certainly be excited when crowds swell, but we must not quit or be discouraged when crowds diminish. Um, our calling is to be faithful. And that's something I deeply respect about Anthony and the folks at Trinity Church. We're going to, um, you've all come today, there's been no charge for the conference. Uh, Anthony wanted it that way. And um, I'm going to invite you to uh, put something in a collection plate that we're going to pass around here in just a few moments. And if you feel, have any sense at all that this is a, this is a message that needs to be heard, um, that the idea of redemptive conversations, the idea of moving into community with each other in some rather unique ways, that really isn't so much the case in a lot of the American culture. 
You all know that Jim Packer, G.I. Packer, when he first came to the States about 50 years ago, he made this comment. He's now 86 years old, but 50 years ago when he was in his 40s and he came to the States, he made this observation, a famous comment. Most of you have heard it. He said, I see the American church as a thousand miles wide and one inch deep. And I think Anthony is calling us to a level of depth that uh, we're, we're wanting to move toward. And if that is something you'd like to support, um, then I urge you to put something in the collection plate if you feel so inclined. No pressure, of course, but a warm invitation. If you are, if you did happen to bring your checkbook and want to write a check, make it out to uh, L-A-R-R-Y C-R... No. <laughs> make it out to the Mid-America District. Mid-America District of the that's the district of the CMA, the Christian Missionary Alliance. And every dollar is going to go straight to Trinity Church. It's going to go straight to Trinity Church for the furtherance of their work there. Uh, they're a small group, but they're a faithful group. And, um, and I feel very warmly attracted to being of support to them in a variety of ways. And if that's how you feel as well, then we'd like to pass around a collection plate. Father, as, um, as we give an invitation to give a couple of bucks... I pray that there'll be no sense of pressure and only a sense of uh, willingness, if that's something that you inspire within us. Uh, Release us to give whatever that you have for us to give uh, for the support of this this work that strikes me as very important. Um, It's a small work, um, but that doesn't make it unimportant. Maybe it actually adds to its importance in some ways. So I ask you to bless each of us that gives and encourage Trinity Church and Anthony and Diane, the leadership, that maybe they really do have something to say. So encourage them with our gifts, we pray in Christ's name. Guys, take up the collection, if you will, and we'll um, pass the hat, as they say. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.